begins now. Capital 263. Welcome to Politics and Beyond on Capital 263. My name is Christopher Farai Charamba. And I'm Tawanda Henry Beatty. And yeah, welcome to the best political podcast in the country. Yes. Um, and indeed, maybe even the region. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, we, we try to dissect all things political and, you know, touch a bit on the beyond as well. Today is April 15, 2017. And uh, we have a guest in studio with us, a very special guest, uh, Dr. Nkosana Moyo. Thank you very much for being here with us today. My pleasure. My pleasure, Chris yeah. and Henry. I'm delighted to be invited to participate because uh, of your audience as young people. In fact, in my organization, we have got a program that we focus specifically to this generation on a pan-African basis. Okay, that's, that's, that sounds quite interesting. I think um, today we're just going to be talking a bit about uh, your program since you mentioned it. Uh, we're going to speak about the economy in Zimbabwe. That's a very important topic. Um, you know, we have all sorts of things happening. Command everything. Um, command agriculture. Command content. Um, we command have, everything. We have bond notes as well. And then we're going to talk about governance, issues of governance. Um, you were once in government, so shed some light on issues of governments and then, you know, take the conversation from there. That, so That I sounds th- good. Fantastic. So I think first off, um, Minds is where you are at now, the Mandela Institute of Development Studies. Studies that's correct. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you could share some insight on that, what it is that Minds does and, you know, how it's important to the continent and to the African youth. Yes. So Minds has been running now for about seven years. And I started it when I retired from the African Development Bank. And the, the journey I had traveled was, as you uh, already alluded, alluded to Christopher, is that I've been in government, I've worked in finance, I've worked in commerce, and I've worked in development finance. Uh, on, and I've been involved in many African countries. So I've been on boards of companies in as far as Nigeria and in East Africa, Uganda, uh, Rwanda, and the like. So I, and I've lived in Tanzania as well, in, the, in Tunisia. So I have seen the African continent broadly. And the conclusion I came to towards the end of my working life, if you like, is that our continent is, doing not, is not doing very well in terms of development. But what disappointed me the most is that we've not created platforms for a conversation amongst ourselves as Africans to try to understand the journey we've traveled to get us to where we are and what it is we should be doing differently to achieve better results going into the future. And the reason why one of our programs is targeted to the youth, yourselves, is that, as you know, the African continent's population or the demographics indicate that we are a very young continent getting even younger as we get into the future, Mm -hmm. which means that everything that goes on in the continent, everything that's not going right on the continent is your fault because you've got the numbers to make it happen any other way that you choose, and you are not choosing to do that. So my view was that we needed to form a platform for Africans to engage with each other in order to try and have the conversations, which are difficult conversations, but we needed to have them in-house, so to speak, not, not with outsiders amongst us, because we had to ask difficult questions. But the youth in particular, as I have said, if we look at elections, because our program is called elections and governance and the potential impact of the youth. 
if you are the majority, in, in spite of the imperfection of our democracies, they are still majoritarian. If they are majoritarian, you young people being in the majority can therefore determine the quality of leaders that we elect. So that's just the logic of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's, that's great. Um, I, I was interested um, to know from your experience, um, you know, we, we go on a lot about pan-Africanism, um, but at the same time, do you think that, you know, our problems are unique um, to ourselves as in the Zimbabwean problems, as Zimbabwean problems and the South African problems are South African problems? Um, essentially, how do you, you know, reconcile the fact that you're operating in so many different sectors and so many different spheres and um, trying to form policy that applies to everyone or dialogue that applies to everyone? So, uh, Henry, I, I think you'll notice, if you do an analysis, you'll find that it's quite intriguing. In fact, when I started the project of Forming Minds, I'd wanted to form an institution which was going to be Zimbabwe-specific. But when I analyzed what the problems were, my conclusion was that Zimbabwe happens to be an acute example of a generic Pan-African problem or specifically Sub-Saharan problem. If you look at the challenges of governance across our continent, I think you'll, you'll agree that Zimbabwe may be an acute example, but actually that problem pervades all, the whole continent. If you look at uh, the mismanagement of economies, again, you'll notice that Zimbabwe may be at one extreme, but by and large, the whole continent suffers from exactly the same issues. So my view was that if we're going to address these things, and also remember each African country, in terms of global competitiveness, each country is way too small to be globally competitive. We need a smart way of agglomerating our economies and making them economies of scale, create an African economy, not economies, but economy of scale, in order to compete globally. And I think when it comes to your generation in particular, whether you like it or not, you are very globalized in your outlook. The way you use technology, travel, the way you interact with your networks, they are very global. But in order for you to find a space in the global village, you need to first find a space on the African continent. And I think you need to find smart ways of how you work with each other to create that critical mass that's going to make you compete globally. Because you have to compete globally. There is no way you, you can get away without competing. And I think when you start looking at those things and those characteristics of our continent, then you will understand the logic of doing things on a pan-African basis. Uh, in what ways, though, can the, the youth engage? You spoke about the youth and you said that we were the majoritarian, but a lot of the youth uh, in Zimbabwe and around the continent are very apathetic when it comes to directly engaging in political affairs. Um, and you said you have a program that you run on elections, but what sort of impact does it actually have um, for young people who, besides tweeting about it, maybe or you know having running an occasional joke on Facebook, they aren't directly engaged in the political affairs of their countries? Chris, you you are also correct about apathy. In fact, it's worse than that. Young people are not only apathetic about politics and the governance of their countries. By and large, they also unfortunately tend to be used by the older generation as the foot soldiers to do things that are not right. 
So when you get violence in, in politics or in elections, it's not my age group that goes beating up other people. It's your age group that does that. But when you look at why you do it and whose agenda you're fulfilling when you do it, it's not your agenda. It's not things that are going to help you as a generation. It's things that are being fed to you to progress our interests, the older generation. So I think, and also I would, I would, where I would differ with you, you've generalized, I think, too broadly. When you go across the continent, you'll notice that young people are actually waking up. So if you look at North Africa and the revolution that took place out there, it was driven by young people. If you look at the elections, which are more recent elections like Nigeria, Senegal, again, the results of those elections indicate a high level of involvement by young people. I would agree with you that in Zimbabwe, I think we still have got a problem. But I think that an initiative like this one hopefully will work them up, provided, however, you, you begin to indicate a path to some outcome. And what does that path look like? Firstly, the economy that is performing so badly affects you much more than it affects me. Your, your life is only just started. And the foundations for your life and for your children are being undermined. So it is really important for young people to come together and they begin to engage with the issue of what kind of country do I want to live in? What kind of country do I want to bequeath to my children? And then understand one thing. Once you've answered that question, it is your responsibility to create it. It's not somebody else's responsibility to create it. So you as a generation, once you answer the question of what kind of country do I want to create, it's you as a group that must create it. So you must begin to strategize and mobilize each other and set out to do what is necessary to get that done. All right. Um, you spoke of a, of a critical mass and um, also of us being used by the older generation. Um, I think, you know, you've, you've been around, you spoke of other elections. Do you have any strategies um, to maybe suggest for like Zimbabwean youth or for the people that might be listening of how we, we must begin to go about that? Because um, even the, the, the genesis of this podcast is in finding that the space is so limited um, for any form of real meaningful engagement or of, 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 of forming or mobilizing at, to a level that might get us to the critical mass that will make these changes. I think before you, you worry too much about mobilizing, you need people like you who are in the vanguard, if I may call it that, to get clarity on what should the agenda be. So let me just use some illustrations. If you today were to go to our parliament, in fact, go to any African parliament, and if you had clarity about the challenges that a modern country in today's global world, the challenges that a country faces, and then you try to match the skill sets of the people that we elect. So let's take collective responsibility. The people that we elect to be our representatives who are responsible for legislation, who are responsible for leading us into that future, are they really up to the job? You know, what is fascinating is that if we take other skills or other areas of endeavor, if I want to get on an aircraft and I want to be reasonably safe and sure that I'm going to get to where I'm going, I am assured that the person sitting in the cockpit knows what they're doing. If I go into a hospital 
and I take my family, child or husband or wife, for treatment or an operation, again, similarly, we've taken a lot of trouble to put bodies in place that are quality assurance bodies that look after the training of people who perform those duties. But when it comes to governance, it's the only space I know of that we say anybody can do it. There is no preparation necessary. We are prepared to vote for anybody. I think the starting point for young people is for you as a young generation to ask yourselves this fundamental question. Why is it that in all other fields of endeavor, we look for long and protracted training to prepare people to perform their duties? And, but when it comes to country leadership, arguably the most complex of them all, we say anybody can do it. Once you've answered that question, I think the rest will follow. Isn't it um, in part in the African context that a lot of our leaders, I'll speak for this current generation in Zimbabwe, came from the liberation struggle and they were given that um, leeway, so to speak, to, to govern us because they were said to liberate us. Um, and now we've sort of built this culture that there, there is a a sort of ruling class or a governing class and, you know, the people. And that's how we've come about the situation that we have now. Um, and all the opposition that sort of come up has mimicked itself on what exists. You hear it in the way that they refer to each other, the Shefu syndrome. Mm -hmm. You have uh, politics of patronage. You have, uh, you know, politics of handouts where we will vote for you if you give us rice and T-shirts and that sort of thing. Um how how do we move away from that? How do we get out of this system and this culture? Because it's not just uh, a ruling party mm. issue. Mm. It's, it's permeated into society at all and different levels. Yeah. Again, Chris, you're right to ask the question, but I would argue that the reason why these issues are very so important for you as a young generation is that I, I would like to think that technology, travel, and exposure generally has made you aware of what is possible and what ought to be. And also understanding that human existence is fundamental about competing. There is no way you can get around it. So if you're trying to secure your future and the foundations of where we've come from have not adjusted to where you would like to go to, what should you do about it? That's the question. And you, you are able to analyze and see the illogicality of the kind of framework you've just painted for me. When you get given things, where are they coming from? These are things that have been taken from you. These are your things already. It's almost, you know, for us, actually, it's a tragedy that we've gotten, we've ended up where we are. It's the same thing as somebody saying, I'm giving you back the land that they took away from us. So government taxes people in fair and unfair means they acquire these things that they come back and say we are giving you. These are your things. They're not being given to you. So, so understand that it's a, an illogical framework. You are being blackmailed using your own assets. I come and steal your shirt and then I give it back to you and say I'm being kind to you. Do you understand how silly that is? So young people are smart enough to see that through that. Are they, are they not? Yeah, I believe they are. Okay. I, I I completely agree with you, um, um, Dr. Moyo. Um, unfortunately, with the level 
of economic strife that we tend to find and with the level of unemployment, uh, you know, being discerning enough to say that we're not going to take that rice, we're not going to take that shirt that's been stolen off our back. Um, for a lot of us, I mean, you know, for a lot of youth uh, is almost impossible. That's why you sort of find that we're, you know, in this, this cycle of, of being used in poverty. Um, you know, how do you measure the success of mines and, and other programs such as it, you know, given that that environment, um, you know, the the successes that you'd see in a situation where someone might be able to engage and have this dialogue, but at the same time still relies on, on patronage or all this to, to live, to survive. So let's go back to, firstly, if you understood me as implying that you shouldn't accept the rise, then that's not what I'm saying. But once you understand that actually they're giving you back what is yours already, you shouldn't feel obligated because they stole it from you and they're giving it back to you. But I think you should, I would argue Absolutely accept it. Why shouldn't you accept it? It's yours anyway. Accept it, but what is really, really important is your course of action. You should not be blackmailed through that rice. In other words, when you get into the voting exercise, the problem is that you are being given what was stolen from you as inducement to support a system that is not working. What I'm saying is do not allow that causality to arise. Accept by all means because it's yours in the first place, but go and act quite completely independently from the fact that you were given something which I'm arguing was yours in the first place. Are we together there? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, we, they, 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 they're not doing us a favor. We're, we're the ones that own this in the first place anyway. Even, I mean, assuming that they were really doing you a favor, they would yeah, come to so... you once every five years. And they buy you something that won't last you a, I mean, give, buy you with something that won't last you a month. And the rest of that period between the elections, you are struggling to support yourself and support your family. They come round again and they would wink you. I mean, why? Are we really that stupid? Are we that asleep? I don't know. I would thought even, <laughs> no. if, even if they genuinely were giving you something they didn't steal from you, you ought to be able to wake up and realize that this is pure blackmail and nothing else. Therefore, you should accept it and then go and vote using a logical process which says this system has failed us. We need to move on to something different. But could it be that the, the alternatives don't provide some sort of uh, um, option that people actually think will be better than what it is that they have now? Um, opposition politics tends to be a bit... Um, polarized. So vote for us because we are not them. Not that they are actually giving any sort of um, economic policy or solutions or ways in which that they will govern better. But that's why I said go back to fundamentals. You as a generation, you should use a completely different process. When people start electioneering, just ask your friends, how do you engage with candidates? What do you ask them? Do you ask them anything at all? Do you prepare yourselves to be able to ask them any questions? If you have not prepared and come to some clarity about what country you would like to create, you, it means you are also not in a position to ask meaningful questions either. But once you've got that clarity, because you've engaged and crystallized how the future ought to be, if you say 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 
what kind of a Zimbabwe would I like to have? You realize that when you compare that kind of picture of whatever you come up with to today's Zimbabwe, you'll come up with almost like a job description for somebody who is able to create that future Zimbabwe. That's what it does for you. So I envision where I would like to go. I compare it with where I am. And there I come up with tasks that need to be performed to take me from here to there. That's a job description, which means I can now engage. When you offer yourself for election, I will ask you, because I now have got a reference point, this is where I want to go. Tell me, what is your plan for doing that? How many of you ask that question? You're correct, um, you know, and uh, I completely, I, like, you know, I'm going to find myself agreeing with you <laughs> a lot today about, about a, a lot of it is a, a result of just the way, you know, we grew up thinking or the way people thought before us. But it, it gives us an opportunity to sort of move into the economy because I think a lot of the questions that anyone would have to ask a candidate or ask a presidential candidate or a party is about, how they're going to solve, you know, the economic issues that we face as a country and even as a continent. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I would like to know, you know, in the most general sense, and we can then bring it down to some government policies that are going on now, in the most general sense, how, how yeah, how, what, what's your view of the, the, the economy at the moment? <laughs> Do you need my opinion on that? <laughs> I think that's clear I, I, okay, to, fine, two, <laughs> that two, is clear two, two, to two, everybody. Two. The economy you, is... You, 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 is in a death spiral. That's clear to everybody, is it not? It's, it certainly is. Um, your ministry, you, you know, industry and, and trade, and a lot of the, the, the conversation right now around bond notes and, you know, the AFRI XMEC imports thing, do you see any hope of revival without any actual fundamental changes or or what's happening with, with the current minister and the Reserve Bank governor will, will yield results at any time in the near future? So again, the starting point for me is an analysis. We need always, I think, when, you, when you're confronted with a particular situation, you need to do a diagnostic. Yeah? Same thing as going to a doctor. The doctor doesn't, you don't walk into a surgery and they just throw some medicine at you. They try to establish what exactly is the matter with you and how you got to have that problem. And only on the basis of that do they then prescribe what it is you need in order to cure you. Is that not the case? So our economy has to be treated in a similar manner. We are where we are. There is a journey that has led us to be where we are. And we ought to have the capacity to analyze, to see exactly what is it that we've done to end, for us to end up where we are. And a lot of people will argue that it's sanctions from somebody. So let me start with the sanctions themselves. You know, when I listen to people argue about sanctions, I say, but if a general takes an army to war and then they get beaten by somebody and then they start criticizing the, the protagonist who beat them, i.e. they were unfair, they used these rules, and it would, would, what would you say about that? When you are a general and you prepare for war, it's your responsibility to know the strengths of your army versus the strengths of the other army. It's your responsibility to know up front that the other side are going to throw everything they've got at you. So if you get it wrong, it's your fault. It's as simple as that. But having said that, so that it actually never becomes an excuse, it simply means you as a general failed and you need to be fired. You shouldn't have the job, right? You failed. 
But when you look at our country, where is our biggest problem? Our biggest problem is that we've got people during these hardships who are milking everybody else and living large as if nothing is wrong with our economy. That is evident to everybody. Why, do we have, why did we have to have bond notes? When we dollarized, we literally, all of us, without exception, zeroed our savings to nothing. So every single dollar that is in my account, I end from that day onwards. So where did it go? This, the starting point is, you need to ask the banks, because the banks have not been honest with us. Where did our money go? Because if I go to the bank and I put the money there and it's not there anymore, it must have gone somewhere. Either the bank lent that money recklessly and lost it, or they gave it to somebody else. They need to account for it. And that's your starting point. Somebody is responsible for our money disappearing from the banks. And they need to give us an honest answer. The answer is not bond notes. The answer is to stop the hemorrhage of where our money went and continues to go. Once we stop that, the issue of bond notes would, will not even arise. So, again, let's just be logical. Right? Uh, fact is that there is no jobs anymore in this country. Literally every day that goes by, some factory closes. People are thrown out of jobs. And we keep complaining, why are investments not happening? Forget foreign direct investment. Just look at local investment. What is going on? Because the government is not facilitating. The government actually has never taken the view that it is responsible for growing the economy. The government has continued in a mindset which says the economy is an enemy. And all the legislation that gets put in place, whether it's labor legislation or whatever, is meant to punish the economy. But everything else that government does or a country does is a product of the economy. So I, what kind of logic? I mean, I just fail to understand. I mean, we've, There is we've, nothing a country can do without a functioning <coughs> economy. We, we've had this um, uh, conversation on this platform before and um, I've, I've written about it, especially that in terms of um, local investment and the policies that are there that don't support any kind of investment, that it's better for... Uh, an investor to go to Zambia and, you know, put their money there rather than, than put it in this country. Um, is there anything that this government can do? Or By the way, it, before we finish that, yeah. but just get out of here and go to parliament and look at every single politician and see how they live. You wouldn't believe they live in this economy, would you? No, of course not. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, but... So is there anything that this government can do? And, it, and you worked in government. Is there anything that you think they are willing to do? Is there that political will to, to change? And if not, what, where, where do we go from here? Okay, let me, let me go back. There is a question which was asked earlier on, which in fact, it's you, Chris, who put it on the table. Before I answer you, because the answer actually applies to both issues, what you brought earlier on about the liberation war and so on. Mm. There is no family that I know in Zimbabwe that did not participate in the liberation war, one way or other. The, the functions or the role we played were different. The guerrillas, when they came in, yes, the guerrillas actually carried the arms and did the fighting. The total support system came from ordinary families in Zimbabwe. And therefore, the argument for a start, which attempts to say there is a different category of people who wage the struggle for freedom, I think is fallacious. Just let's start from there. 
there is no family I know of in this country that did not participate in the liberation struggle. So that's point number one. Point number two. Have you guys ever heard of a guy called Churchill? Winston. Yes. Winston yeah. Churchill. You know the story about Winston Churchill. Which one? About him as a leader. An army leader mm -hmm. in the World War. And then when he came back to try and lead, lead reconstruction, what happened? He failed. He failed. He failed. Be because... He was not a good peacetime leader. He because was, uh, the he British understood that a brilliant soldier is not necessarily a brilliant leader of a country which is at peace, which needs to build rather than to destroy. So let's just remember that. It doesn't follow that if you executed a brilliant strategy at war and won, you will also be able to lead a, a country at peace, which means, which requires cohesion, nation building, healing, and, develop, and growing an economy. The two are not the same task. Right. So, yep. um, so you know, from your vast, you know, experience, which includes being a minister, and in, in fact, in this case, also includes being at the AFDB. Um, what some, what are some of the solutions, or some of the questions, or the thinking that we as youth should be asking, or, you know, if you were in power, if you had the chance to fix it, what would you do? <laughs> I think um, in, I, in a, briefly, um, if you can just give some quick policy prescriptions that you think are necessary in the short, to, short term. I'm going to do that, but let me tell you what the risk is. And I've seen this before. So if I tell you what needs to be done, you will find it's like, let's say I went and spent years and years training and became a surgeon, specialized person. And then I, there is a particular procedure that I know needs to be done in a particular way and I write that procedure on a piece of paper. What I've seen happening time and time again on our continent is that our leaders take that prescription and go and give it to somebody who didn't do the training. That is, and they think that a prescription written by somebody who is capable of doing what is needed to be done can simply be uplifted and be given to somebody else who hasn't done the training and they'll be able to do the same. You understand the risk. <laughs> yes, and I'd be very happy if anyone in the government is listening to us, but I'm not too sure if they okay. listen to us. Yeah, so that's, that's the know, risk. I, I'm going to tell you what. If, no, I, if I run an administration, the, the exercise I told you about earlier, diagnostic, where are we as a country? There are three pillars of how I would go about rebuilding Zimbabwe and forming, and let me be very clear, I would be forming a foundation for somebody else to come and build upon that foundation. Because this is a job that you cannot say, I'll finish in five years or ten years. It's you will get started to move in the right direction and accept that somebody else, because of the time it's going to take, will come and build the walls of that building to which I've put a foundation. And yet somebody else will come and put a roof over it. Yeah? So that's the process. So... What, yes. what would be the foundations? One of them I've already talked about. Nation building and nation healing. The reason being a very simple one. The biggest resource that any country has are its people. Zimbabwe does not have a nation. We are a divided nation. If we want to be able to undertake the task at hand, which will require for us as a nation to do to sacrifice, because why sacrifice? 
there will never be enough resources to do everything in one go. So we'll have to come to some agreement about what the priorities are going to be and what the sequencing is going to be and they do agree that some things will be delayed to some future date and we start with these agreed things. That's sacrificing and that you can only do if a nation is united. Are we together? Mm -hmm. given, yes. where we, given where we come from in terms of the fragmentation, the pain that is in this nation, there has never been nation healing in our country. I mean healing in our country. You know, we fought a war. People were killed in that war. People have continued to be killed in this, the so-called peaceful time. And we've never invested in reuniting our people and make them be proud and work as Zimbabweans as one. So within that nation-building exercise, you also need a national healing exercise. All that I put in one pillar. Okay? So let's leave that one. The next most important pillar for me is that when you look around, you as a Zimbabwean, as a civilian, you are made to feel that the states, the, the institutions of state in this country don't work for you because they've never been created to be neutral and they work for Zimbabweans. They've been politicized and they've been made an attachment to ZANU. That is wrong. If we're going to build a country that's going to be successful, we need institutions of state to be independent, genuinely independent, and to serve Zimbabweans in a non-political way. We need, as an example, the police cannot be police that say, if you belong to ZANU, the law does not apply to you. We, we need to get over that. And all other uh, institutions of state have to be reconstructed in that manner so that you feel whether it's the legal system, uh, services delivered by the state, if there is a, 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 a famine, for instance. For people in a particular re region to say you can only get access to food if you produce a ZANU card, that's wrong. I'm a Zimbabwean and I should have certain rights which are completely inalienable as a Zimbabwean. I don't have to join MDC or ZANU in order to get those privileges. They are mine as a Zimbabwean. So that's the second pillar, to build institutions of state that save Zimbabweans irrespective of which, whether they are Catholic, Protestant, uh, atheists, ZANU, MDC, all those categorizations should not count for genuine state institutions for this country. The last one is the obvious one. These two, in my opinion, are incredibly important and facilitative of the third pillar. And the third pillar is to develop our economy. Our economy Yes, to be, we need to be very clear. At the end of the day, when we fought, why did we fight? It is because Zimbabweans, were, black Zimbabweans, were treated like second-class citizens. All of the laws, when you look, go back and look carefully, all of the laws that Ian Smith put in place were economic laws. They were laws which were meant to disadvantage black Zimbabweans. It was almost like a heat exchanger, if you understand what that is. The black community produced energy which was systematically siphoned to provide energy to the white economy. And unfortunately, I have to tell you that what we've done post-1980 
is an animal farm. If you haven't read Animal Farm, go reread it. Because we have, we have reproduced exactly the same system. In, in fact, no, no, no. We've not reproduced. We've maintained and continued the same system. The only thing we changed was who is running it. And unfortunately, because this is our country and we're in the majority, that system has been made to continue to work against us, the, the majority of the people. But and the few whites who are running this country have been replaced by our own rulers who are now black, but they are running it exactly in the same way to their advantage and the disadvantage of all of the other people. Would you say in the exactly the same way? I mean, now the government has embarked on different you know, programs to try and I think they've identified the, uh, the agriculture sector as you know, uh, what it is that they want to grow the economy. And now we have this command agriculture um, system where they argue that you know, we need, people don't have inputs, people don't have you know, resources to actually farm the land that they were given some 17 years ago, whenever it was. Um, and now they've, you know, directed resources to this project and we'll see the results of it. So okay. is this not a way in which, you know, to target the economy, to speak on a sector and to try and grow in that manner? So what does command mean? Tell me what command it, means. It's, it's, it's an order. <laughs> it's an order. It's a, it's a <laughs> so we are all in the army, are we? I, I, I suppose. Well, we're not. But this is the approach that our government has chosen to go. So let me, let me ask you a question. And you young people need to ask yourselves this question. What is the role of government? What is the role of government? It's to facilitate the environment for its citizens to go about their business in a short sort of answer. Does that uh, amount to commanding them? No, it doesn't. Do I have to? no? But but <laughs> I, I I understand your question. But you know you, you have to also you know we are a victim of our environment. You have to listen to the language that that we use in Zimbabwe. At least in Shona we rule. You know that's that's the language in Zimbabwe is is that do you want to rule? And I'm sure a lot of people would give you a different answer. I mean we we are privileged that you know Chris and I are privileged. Maybe we speak from 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 you know academic perspectives and towers but i guarantee you if you go you know outside out of harare out of Plueo, and you ask someone our same age and youth is what the what's the role of government they'll tell you the role of government is to rule do you think <laughs> do you think rekai tangwena was a ruler or a leader who was that sorry rekai tangwena was he a ruler yeah. or a leader of his people ah uh, that's a good question I'd say he was a leader. So, the, the two words do exist, you're mm -hmm. right. There is a ruler, there is a leader. Mm -hmm. Which one would you rather have? A leader. So, why are you buying into the command and the ruler issue rather than choosing the other? But this is, I think it's just the, the, the way that society has been, or what society has been subjugated to over a long period of time. It's not that they would not prefer the option of a a leader, but it is something that has just what the what they've been born into, especially the young people who were born after independence. Um, you know, many of us have known President Mugabe as the only leader of this country or ruler of this country, whichever term you want, you might want to use. So it's not something that 
they don't want, mm. but it's just a circumstance that we happen to be in. Okay, so we are we, the two of us are in Harare, and uh, Henry is in Australia somewhere. Yeah, you young people have got the advantage. You see, some of us grew up in rural settings where you really didn't know what was going on beyond your village. That is not the same with you. You have got lots of reference points which allow you to do what I said earlier on. Project forward, envision the society you'd like to see. Yes, you can choose. You can choose to be ruled or choose to be led. So as long as you've made those choices and that's what you've come up with, that you want to be ruled, then I would expect you to vote for rulers. But if you've <coughs> done the analysis and come up in a place which says, actually, I would rather be led, then I would expect your actions to indicate that. Um, I, I, on that point, um, you know, opposition, you know, is the, meant to be the alternative in this country. And a lot of, a lot of youth, um, you know, say that they're, they're bereft of ideas. Um, do you think it's time for, for us to actually step up and, and lead ourselves or, is there still an, another option out there that, uh, you know, including yourself, if you're going to throw your hat in the ring or anyone that you see right now on the ground, um, that as soon as 2018 can provide us um, at least some guidance or some of the, the solutions that we've spoken about today? Yeah, so I don't want to be prescriptive. I'm not the one to tell you what, what you should do. All I'm very clear about is that you've got the advantage of numbers and that you young people, if you really chose... The, not just this country, if young people across our continent chose, our continent would transform in a decade, literally. In a, it, it wouldn't take that long. If you young people utilized your numbers and your abilities to analyze and conclude that what is pertaining at the moment is not what you want, Without going to war, I wouldn't even advocate doing that because I think revolutions are very problematic. Because revolutions, actually, when you look at history, all they ever do is reproduce what it is you thought you were fighting against. Yeah? So I'm much more for a, an evolution, but a very clear, clearly thought out and determined action plans by the majority who happen to be you people. Just look at the world around you. Look at what system appeals to you. And you've got every right to choose which system that is. And then put your minds towards working with people will help you create it for your own future and your kids' future. It's all in your hands. And I think we should not get caught up about the opposition. As you said, and I understand where you're coming from, we are all products of a socialization. The opposition come from the same history that we're coming from. I have observed personally, even in the private sector, sorry to say, the behavior of managers, black managers in the private sector, often mimics the behavior of white, previous white managers and how they used to mistreat black people. Because they were socialized, they internalized without realizing that what they were now playing back to their own people is almost like out of the, the uh, rule book created by the previous administration. So all that is necessary, again, to go back, is for you young people to get clarity on where you want to go, mobilize each other, and they look around you, start engaging with whoever offers themselves 
for leadership, I hope, not rulership, and they choose accordingly. I and think, you can do it. I think one of the, the, the biggest issues is the aspect of mobilizing. Um, you know, you spoke that Henry's in Australia. I'm here. Uh, we have the ability to record this podcast, but we speak to a very small demographic when we, when we look at it. When you look at the numbers, especially when people talk about elections in Zimbabwe and they talk about how the, the, the rural vote is a, you know, a key constituency in, in elections here and a huge part of our population lives out in the rural areas. The problem then comes in in communicating between us in Harare and the people or the young people out in the rural areas because we 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 live in different societies and different circumstances. So where I can say I am not going to um, be bought by rice because I can afford my own rice, people out there no, have no, no, different no. Even circumstances. If you even if you can't afford, let's get this clear. I said you can accept the rice. Sure, I, I, I get that, but then... Yeah. People will then have this, they feed us this obligation. It's a politics of the belly situation yeah, yeah, where yeah. people then, you know, they have this, because these people bring rice or I go there and I speak and I say, look, you can take the rice, but, you know, you have the choice to vote for whoever you want. They then say, but you are also Tigra rice, you're not bringing rice here. Or if I vote them out, do I have a guarantee that the next person is going to bring me rice or bring me something that I can then use? Okay, so the, the, the honest answer is that in life there are no guarantees. That You'd have to be very honest. In life there are no guarantees. You'd have to walk with them and explain that to the best of my abilities, what's available, information available to me, my analysis says this choice is likely to lead us in a different place. Point number one. Point number two, tell me something. Who of you young people doesn't have a kumusha. Very few, I'd say. So, so Very few of us. Therefore, this, there is a fallacy here. It means if you took it upon yourselves within family and friends, and don't, don't go for rallies and silly things like that. That's not necessary. If you convinced young people to each take upon themselves kuenda kumusha and go uguyekaya and go and start with the people around you and engage them on the conclusions that your generation will have arrived at in terms of where you want the country to go, you wouldn't need to campaign. You would do the campaigning by just going to family and friends. It would be done. Okay? So now, let's go back. Let me finish the rice issue. Okay. Let's understand something. I do not know that it's going to be different with anybody. There is no dignity in being fed. Over time, I'd rather be able to support my own family. So what I would appreciate is not to be fed every five years, when the, every fifth year when the elections come around. What I would appreciate personally is for my leadership, my government, to create an environment in which I can look after my own family and retain my dignity. That's how you should explain to people. Yeah. They can be fed. Right. They should absolutely accept the rice, but they should be prepared. They should should invest in preparing for an administration that's going to create an environment that gives them back their dignity, so that they can take on the responsibility of feeding their own families. It's okay. almost yeah. I mean, I don't I don't see why 
a wolf grown up man and woman mother and father of children would feel proud to have these handouts being given to them as opposed to them having pride in saying we using our own energy because of the environment that is enabling we've produced food for our family and all of the other things that we need to to educate our children and so on there is much more dignity in that yeah yeah that i think the politics of of dependency is obviously what's kept um you know zanu in power for the last 37 years is that um we've been told that without them we would still be you know would still be under the yoke of the white person we've been told that without them would have no food so i think that that mentality needs to change um and i agree with you there but what we need uh, to look- accept henry what we need to accept is that rulers everywhere in the world that's how they are going to position themselves in order to persuade people to keep them there as long as you get clarity and you have to start working for your own agenda and understand that it's up to you to create that understanding in order to change people to begin to choose to be led rather than being ruled over choose a government that's going to facilitate for them to reclaim their dignity for them to be able to feed their families not to be given handouts it's the job you then have to take on and to go and explain to people the other and, the other uh, side is not going to do it for you they will not do no, it for no, you no yeah. not at all and um you know i think you know a lot of what's happening with the youth is a lack of a focal point um a lack of uh, some someone that inspires or that we can rally behind and uh you know i have to be very careful how i word this, this next question <laughs> but you know when when we've had a previous guest um your name uh, along with strife masio along with you know other business people other leaders that are no that are, are not in the country or that are around but are not necessarily yoshingimitasas uh, are not necessarily in politics right now have have has been thrown about in terms of a third force in terms of a coalition leader um we wanted i wanted to know what do you say to that because i'm sure you have young people who are inspired by you um, i'm sure our listeners generally agree with you and you're of the right age you have the right cv um to to take our country forward and even what you said today you said that it's a transitional period no one else is saying things like this because most people will say i will fix the problems um but having an honest assessment is something that's very rare um so yeah in multiple conversations your name comes up in in terms of leadership um have you considered that well let me answer your question in two parts and absolutely I'll answer it I'm not going to duck it I've already put <laughs> you're not going to poli- you're not going to be a politician about it <laughs> no not at all I have already <laughs> don't, put please don't say if the people want no 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> but I've already put it in the into the public domain that I am considering this I've discussed with my family I need to to be quite careful and respect the people around me who are saying ngosana you really need to think it through you can't jump into doing this and as a result i'm taking my time to really assess whether this is something i want to try try and do in other words put my name forward it's on the table and i hope that within let's say in in the space of about 8 weeks i've given myself that deadline i'll have to come back because i've put it into the public domain already i'll come back and say it's go or no go but what i'm going to say to you though is that whether i do it or not 
you as young people owe it to yourselves to begin to do exactly what I told you. Clarify for yourselves what kind of country you want. Clarify for yourselves who you can work with to create that country. If I happen to be available, it, I, I am sure that I'll be one of many who will offer themselves. But the process that you should be able to put all of us through should allow you to then choose who is it that would be appropriate to work with you? Who is it that you'll be confident to get onto that plane with and say, I know I'll get to my destination. It won't crash in the desert somewhere. Okay? I think that's a, All right, a, that's, a, a fair that's, that's, um, that's, answer. That's and, fair. Uh, that's, we'll we'll uh, be waiting the time? for the next um, eight weeks. You said to, and you to can come and out. announce your you can come and announce your run on, on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I think our podcast will be a very good platform for you to for for, for to those. Announce. Um, That's I, fine. I I I think our time is running out. I don't have um, anything more serious except um, you know just a, a general question in terms of um, your we've been speaking like this and it can seem very dim um, our views of the future. Um, do you have hope? Um, that's actually a question I think a lot of people need to need answered because when we have these conversations, it can seem that we're saying that our continent is backwards, our people are not doing certain things, but do you have hope that these solutions will actually actually happen? Absolutely. In fact, if I didn't have hope, then I wouldn't be saying I'm considering putting my name up for, for election. Because why would I bother? I would just go retire and play golf and have fun. I can go live anywhere I like. <laughs> I absolutely. And I hope that this does not annoy our neighbors and other countries. But Zimbabwe in particular absolutely does not have to be where it is today. We, we are one of the luckiest countries around. When you look at our human resources, the work ethic of Zimbabweans, the actual institutional nature, although our institutions have been subverted, we as people are very inclined to work very institutionally. We are very disciplined people. When you look at the education, and the education in this country is not a government issue. It's a family issue, according to my experience. Families make their children understand how important education is. The resources for this country are amazing. So we've got all the cards are right for us. All we are missing, I dare say, is we've substituted rulership for leadership, unfortunately. Dr. Kosaramoyo, yeah. uh, thank you very much for being uh, on Politics and Beyond. It was a very engaging conversation that we've had. Um, a lot of our listeners are online. Where can people find you online? Do you engage with, with people online? How can they, you know, contact you if they want to engage further? They can engage. I'm, I'm actually on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page, which is a public space. But what people have to uh, 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 sort of appreciate is that I'm still full-time employed. So the time to engage and respond may not satisfy everybody, but I'll try to respond to what people have got to ask. Okay, fantastic. Uh, you've been listening to Politics and Beyond on Capital 263. My name is Christopher Farai Charamba. You can find me at Chris Charamba on all social media. And I'm Tawanda Henry Beatty. I'm Henry Beatty on all social media. And yeah, um, thanks for listening to Capital 263. Um, free to say it. Free to do it. Cheers. Thanks. And now. And now.
Capital 263.